This episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting Roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit them on social media or at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Hoosier Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. From the time he was a boy, little Roy Lewis has loved bluegrass music and the banjo. From picking cotton to picking the five string, little Roy journeyed from the rural south to the biggest stages in the world, both with the first family of bluegrass gospel, the Lewis family, and with the little Roy and Lizzie show. Along this path, little Roy has become known as a larger-than-life entertainer. His humor, pranks, on-stage antics, and phenomenal musicianship have all made him one of bluegrass music's biggest personalities. His secret... Enjoy what you do, and don't take it too seriously. Daniel caught up with Little Roy on the deck of a cruise ship earlier this year and is excited to bring listeners this conversation on Walls of Time podcast. I gotta ask, where does your energy come from? Because you have more energy than just about anybody I've ever met. Well, you know, a lot of people thought my energy came from Mountain Dews. I, my favorite drink was a Mountain Dew. It came out in 1964, and I was in, in a place called Elizabethtown, uh, North Carolina, and a man, I was hot, and a man took me to his car. It's 64, uh, uh, it was a 64 uh, Buick. He took me out there and opened the trunk, and he gave me a Mountain Dew. After I drank that, when I drank them, uh, for all those years, until four years ago, and then I had a problem with my throat. And the doctor said I couldn't drink anymore. But a lot of people said that's where my energy came from, but that wasn't it. You know where <laughs> my energy comes from is watching people and see that, seeing that they enjoy what I do. And I'm a person, when I'm at home, I'm working, I'm cutting grass, or either I'm washing cars, or either I'm getting things ready to go, uh, working on the bus. I love to do things, and it's never a dull moment in my life. And if it is dull, I am mean, because I really <laughs> like to do what I do. And uh, when we do shows and people come up and shake my hand, that's what gives me the energy, and I love people. You So you said you can't sit still. H- has that ever gotten you into trouble, not being able to sit still? Yes. i tell you what. One time, my wife uh, made me go see a movie, and uh, I tell you what, after a while, the popcorn is gone. You don't want any more, and the thing is still going on. I can't hardly wait to get out to maybe get back home to do what I want to do, and usually that is to pick my banjo or to play my guitars or put strings on I never polish them. I just throw them in the case. You know, a lot of people take a guitar and they wipe the strings off, wipe the strings off. Well, the way I play a guitar, the strings ain't going to last for three 45-minute shows. So you just go ahead and beat the devil out of it. And then after three shows, put new strings on, and you won't have no problem. <laughs> um, I heard you mention the other day that you used to walk how many miles just to see Flatten Scruggs' bus drive by? Well, the Lewis Family Museum is now in our hometown of Lincoln County, Lincolnton, Lincolnton, Georgia. That's near Augusta. Jeff and Sherry, that's my niece. Uh, Jeff and Sherry, you know, the show, uh, that's my niece. And they bought the old home place, and uh, they fixed it into, uh, it fixed it into a, like a little museum for us down Lewis Family Road. And by the way, the Highway 378, the big highway, uh, I didn't know when I used to walk up to the road or ride the bicycle see Lester Flatton Earl Scruggs, that road be, would be named after my daddy. His name is James Roy Lewis. And when you get into Lincoln County, you see the highway saying James Roy Lewis. Well, when I was a little boy, well, I wasn't that little. Let me see. Uh, I was born in 42. In 1955, uh, Lester and Earl had their television show. It was in it was in. Uh, Chattanooga, and it was in Atlanta, in Florence, South Carolina, in West Virginia. Well, anyhow, I came home one day, and Daddy said, I saw Lester Flatton Earl Scruggs bus. Another week or two, somebody said, 
that bus comes through every Wednesday morning. So I got up, I'd get up 8 o'clock in the morning, ride my bicycle almost a mile, mile and a half, and I sit on the side of the road. Sometime I have to wait. Uh, sometime I have to wait an hour, hour and a half. But I could see it coming around that great bit long curve. And I'd say, I'm going to wave at them this time. And when they get close to him, I never waved. And Earl Scruggs turned out really to be one of my very, very best friends. At his uh, later days, he stayed down in Lincolnton at our home with us a lot. And I told him about it. He knew about that. He said, well, in the morning time, we had to sleep before the sun come up because it was hot. And he said, we were sleeping in Washington, Georgia. I ain't 11 miles. If I knew that, I could have went to Washington. I could have went to Washington, Georgia and met him every week. <laughs> but I didn't know that until he was about 82 years old. <laughs> so you must have been ate up with the music at an early age then to be that diehard of a Flatt & Scruggs fan. Well, uh, put it like this. We would listen to Bill Monroe, and we would listen to all of that. As a little boy, I remember... I remember, I barely remember String Bean being with them. Yeah. But, and then I started, I was born in 42, so, but I started playing banjo uh, about six years old. But anyhow, I, I, old-time banjo pickers showed me how to play. And uh, around 1947, I guess it was, I heard Bill Murano with Lester Flatner Scruggs, and I said, what in the world is he doing? And uh, so I, I tried to figure it out. And my brother, uh, that's when late on, you know, Mac Wiseman had left them and formed his own band. And mom and dad had bought us tickets to go see them in Washington, Georgia. And I couldn't hardly wait to see Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, not Bill Monroe, but Lester and Earl. And that night I kept waiting and I kept waiting, walked around to the back, see the old Chrysler they rode in, limousine. I saw the 49 Ford. And a convertible, I'm saying, wow, I can't hardly wait to see Earl Scruggs. And when the banjo picker stepped out on stage, it was Don Reno, and it was Mac Wiseman, Chubby Wise. He had changed, and then I became a Don Reno lover, <laughs> and I followed him. So anybody ask me today who the best banjo pickers in the world are, and to my mind, it's still Earl Scruggs and Don Reno. Can't beat that. No, you can't beat that. <laughs> um, but you play more than just the banjo. What Was the banjo your first instrument? Yes, it was. Um, about uh, when I was about 11 years old, you know, we had, uh, we had formed the Lewis family. And uh, my brother Wallace played rhythm. And, uh, and I, would hear, I would hear good guitar picking. I don't remember who it was at that time. But later on, I got to see Bill Napier. And uh, I just fell in love with the way he did his guitar playing. And so, and then Earl Scruggs was doing that, going to make heaven my home and all that stuff. And so I started taking my banjo picks and copying all that stuff Earl was doing on the guitar. Then I saw Bill Napier, and, uh, and I put all that together. And then it was one black man in my hometown. His name was Kane Lightning. And he was black. That's and a he good was, guitar picking he was, name. <laughs> he was 400 pounds, and he played the blues. Well, uh, I'd sit down with him, and he would play the blues, and I'd kind of strum along with him with the uh, Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs rhythm. And, uh, and all at once, I was watching the tuning on his guitar, and I started tuning my guitar like that, and then I started putting it in that what I thought that would sound like Merle Travis would have done it if he maybe would have been a black man. Yeah. It had that feeling, it had that feeling that nobody else can have. And his name was Kane Lightning, and we got tapes at home somewhere of me and Pop and Kane Lightning oh, wow. playing music together. He died a long, long time ago. But my influence was Earl Scruggs, Bill Napier, and Kane Lightning. On the guitar. On the guitar. Let's go back. You mentioned seeing Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys for the first time. What was that like, finally seeing someone play the banjo the way that you had heard on the radio? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And my brother went to see Mac Wiseman, and, and he came back, 
And uh, he stopped at the music store and bought me my third pick. See, I was playing with yeah. two picks. I was playing with a thumb and one. And he said, they're using three picks. And I was trying to do two little, 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 little with one pick. And then when he gave me that pick, then I bought, uh, he would buy me the Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and Bill Monroe's records, uh, all the ones Earl was on. And then he would buy, he would buy like, um, he would go so and get Jim and Jesse and then people like that. And then that's when, that's when I started really wanting to do it really good. And uh, so uh, that's how it all started with me. What was your childhood like growing up in Lincolnton, Georgia? We had it hard. Um, my dad had run what we called a skinning shed, but it was really a slaughterhouse. And uh, uh, it's still down at the old place, the concrete part is. Sometimes um, it would be like 10 cows dead, re- ready to be butchered, and then it would be hogs. And then we had a big vat that we would, uh, would uh, uh, boil them in and scrape the hay off of them. And then we had to, we had to feed the hogs and, and the cows, and then had to pick cotton, pull corn. And uh, really, it was a really hard life. But in 1950, a man came out to the house, and uh, he told Pop, he said, Roy, he called him Roy. He said, Roy, if you take little Roy to town with that banjo, I'm going to give him $10. And said, uh, when he gets back, my brother's going to bring him $10. That was in 1950. Oh, wow. And he's and here's a cup, and I want him to play at every store all the way through Lincoln, which ain't a big town, but it's probably about 15 stores. And I never will forget, when I got through that day, I had $29 and a few cents, and I never wanted to go to school. I didn't want to do anything <laughs> but pick that doggone banjo. And that's why it's still in me. And when I walk out on the stage, I'm still excited as I was in 1950 when I got that money. But you found out that you could pick the banjo instead of picking cotton. That's a lot better trade-off. Yeah, but I had to do, I had to do that until uh, 1960. And in 1960, uh, we had our television program in 1953, but we wasn't making any money. We were just doing local, you know, around a 150-mile radius. And, and then we started making pretty good money riding in a limousine, old limousine, with the bass fiddle on the top and the instruments in the back. And then I went to work in a Millican Mills uh, for a few years, and we would park the bus on the corner in this other town, McCormick, South Carolina, and we'd get off of my family. would A lot of my family worked there. And when we'd get off, we'd run in this shell filling station and clean up a little bit and go singing, and go singing 100 miles, come back at 1 o'clock tonight, next morning, go back to work. And that lasted about four years, some of the worst time of my life. That was harder than working in the fields. Wow. So you mentioned you were, in 1950, it's when you got paid to go play the banjo on the street, but how long was it before the Lewis family formed and started playing music as a family going out as a band? In nineteen in 1951, it was the Lewis brothers. It was me and my brother. Talmage, my brother Wallace, and my brother, nobody don't know, he went with the railroad, his name was Esley. He played the bass fiddle, and he also was the first banjo picker for who I was. But when he got out of the Army, I was playing better than he was, so he went to the bass. So we, it was a Lewis family. It was, it was a Lewis brothers from 1947 until 1951. In 51, we started putting the Lewis family together, and when he got out of the Army, uh, we added Polly, then we add, we added Miggy first, the oldest girl, and then Polly, and then Janice, and then television came to Augusta, Georgia. Uh, it was Thanksgiving of 1953, and about half of that year later, we had a television program on w, WJBF-TV, Channel 6 in Augusta, and we had that program, the number one program, uh, for 15 solid years, but it lasted 38 years. And after 38 years, the Lewis family was going so much that we'd done special. So we did a, a total of 52 years with Channel wow. 6 in Augusta. Wow. How, how do you think that that exposure helps the Lewis family, especially oh, in those early years? Oh, you don't know. Uh, when we got on TV in Augusta, like I said, it was a radius around 
200 miles around. We'd go up in North Carolina, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, down to Savannah, Georgia. We covered all of that. But the man that owned our station was J.B. Fuqua. That was J.B.F., Channel 6, J.B.F. His name was J.B. Fuqua. And he was a big person, you know, with a lot of money. And he had all these television stations all over the United States. So when videotape came in in 1960 and 61, he put us on every station. And we had the... And we had the number one program on every station, even in Memphis. It was Elvis Presley's favorite television program. So even so, after videotape came out, y'all essentially went to syndication on all these sh- stations put, across the country. They would send them through the uh, they would send them through the mail on a bicycle. They called it. And what they would do, they would send them to like twenty five or thirty stations, and they would come in. Then we would tape over them. Never saved any of it because oh, the tapes man. cost three hundred and fifty dollars a piece back then. You know, it was two inch tape, yeah. and they couldn't afford. Just keep, keep giving us new tapes. Every week, yeah. And so when they come in, we retape over them and tape them. That's a sad thing because we could have had all that. And it's still some of that footage left. It's on YouTube and all. Did you guys start out doing all gospel or mostly gospel? Or no. how did that come about? Lewis family, uh, The Lewis brothers played for square dances and sung hillbilly music. Uh, like all the hit songs, like uh, Hank Williams and stuff like that. And we got booked on a show one time in 1950, around 1952. And uh, and it was the Woodman of the World. And oh, the Mom, insurance company, right? Yeah, and Mama said, I think they're real religious and y'all going to do some religious songs. So we got Bill Monroe's record of Shine, Hallelujah, Shine. Yeah. And... Uh, I forget, he put out some 78s. We learned those songs. And about that time, we heard the Masters family singing uh, the song about uh, Gloryland March. And then we heard some of the Chuck Wagon Gang songs, the Carter family gospel song. So we start putting ours together. In 1953, we, Jimmy Davis was a friend of ours. He was the governor and wrote You Are My Sunshine and nobody's darling but mine. And we were friends with him from 53 until he died, and we sung at his 101 birthday. But he told us in 53, he told Pop, he said, y'all got a good thing going, but you don't need to copy anybody. So that day, he told us that we start getting our own songs, and, and people got to liking us and writing songs, like Randall Hilton and... uh. And all these, uh, Sally, uh, what's her name, Jerry Sally, and all these people that write all these songs. And uh, even got songs at home from Johnny Cash, the Wilburn Brothers, and uh, uh, Kathy Mattel. We have all of that. They would send us songs. And that's where the Lewis family, and of course, we worked with the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesman Quartet, the Spear family. And see, we were in that gospel, so we would... We would steal their, some of their songs and do them the way the Lewis family wanted to do them. So it was a combination. It was a combination of people writing songs and us remembering the good old songs that all the quartets sang. So you intentionally kind of, I mean, everyone says bluegrass gospel, but you intentionally tried to kind of put yourself in both camps and take songs from both worlds? That's exactly what we did, and it worked. Now, uh, when the Lewis family retired in 2009 and had to retire because Polly was so uh, bad and Wallace had passed away and mom and dad, and so they wanted to retire, but I'm the youngest one, and I had been getting Lizzie ready for a few years, so we just formed the Little Row and Lizzie show. They said, why did you do it like that? I didn't want to use uh, the word like Lewis because everybody think I'm kind of going on that name. I just want everybody to know who I am as Little Roy and Lizzie. And so I love to watch the Porter Wagner show. He was on the same time we was on. But I like what you say, the Porter Wagner show. And I told Lizzie, I said, I'm a show. <laughs> I, I'm a show, and I'm going to always be a show, and that's why I want to be the Roy and Lizzie show. I, I can agree 110% because I just watched the Little Roy and Lizzie show, and it is a show. Where do you get uh, your sense of showmanship from? 
I got all that from watching cartoons, and Oliver Hardy was born right down the road from me, and I love Stan Laurel, that look he had. The Sunshine Boys was a gospel quartet from the 30s up until they died in, in the 80s. And uh, to watch that man on the stage, I'd just get down and roll. And when Lonzo and Oscar would come into town, I was all on the front row. And I put Lonzo and Oscar and that, the cartoons, Laurel and Hardy and Stan Laurel together. And then it was a man in gospel music that wore red socks, that wore red socks. And I said, boy, that is something. But I never did wear red socks, but there was an old man in my town that played the banjo, and he wore suspenders. And I said, wow, I won't do the suspenders. I won't do the socks, but I'll do the red suspenders. And if you see pictures of me when I was a little boy, I had red suspenders on. <laughs> They're not to hold my pants up. They're just for stage. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to give the people a show? I don't know. Um, you know, like we sing at a church sometimes, I still, a show, <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. It's just the way I feel. And I, if, I, if I don't do something to make somebody laugh, then I ain't happy myself. Yeah. It, it comes from inside. I got to be funny. I got to be funny. Uh, I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's Hair Care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. And now back to Walls of Time. You mentioned uh, seeing Laurel and Hardy and Lonzo and Oscar and then the cartoons. What are some of your favorite cartoons? I used to like to uh, to watch, you know, like Tom and Jerry. And um, I like to watch, of course, the Three Stooges. I like to watch that. And uh, I like always like to watch, uh, what was it, Duck? Uh, they don't show it anymore, you know. Donald Duck or Daffy yeah. Duck? Uh, the one that's always doing something I, it was daffy duck yeah yeah that's it not donald duck daffy duck yeah yeah everything was bad to him you know that's where i always everything bad to me <laughs> what are some of your favorite moments of having fun on stage and making people laugh what are some of the most outlandish things you've done on stage one of the things i really like to got hurt was down in uh kerrville texas we was down there with the awesome brothers and and uh jim and jesse we was with Ernest Tubbs, and uh, I thought that was the biggest thrill of my life. In fact, I went out on the stage with him. And I told him I wanted to be a two before, you know, two, troubadour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> told him I wanted to be a two before. <laughs> and the Awesome Brothers that day came on stage, and it was open rafters. And uh, it was on a, it, the people were on a hill, and it was open rafters. And the front of the stage was open. And I climbed through all those snake sheds and all those spider webs with a costume on. And everybody was laughing because they could see me, but the Osborne brothers couldn't because I was overhead. Yeah. And I was What right. was the costume? I forgot what it was. It's been so long ago. It was something. I don't know. I don't really remember the costume, but I know one thing. I'll never do it again. I was nine feet up in the air. And when the banjo break come, I jumped right in front of Sonny and took his break. Like to kill me, but I done it. <laughs> Never do it again. <laughs> did, did it about kill you or did Sonny about kill you? Both of them. 
<laughs> no, boy, I tell you what, that's Sonny and Bobby. I, I told, I would tell anybody today, if you sung with Bobby Osmond and couldn't sing the other parts, you might as well hang it up. Bobby Osmond was the best singer besides Mac Wiseman I've ever sung with. Really? Yeah. If you couldn't sing the other two, if the other people, if I couldn't sing and somebody up with Bobby Osmond, you might as well quit. Me and Polly, my sister Polly, we'd always go out on their show and we were singing and Jesus sure changed me, and I'm glad he let me in. You remember that song? Yeah. We'd always sing that with him. And Sonny, Sonny was always uh, different, but we made uh, a lot of people happy, and it lasted a long time. And then I started doing it with Jim and Jesse, and, and then I started doing it with James King. And uh, I just enjoyed being out on somebody's stage sometime, something that I know that was going on. Now, Today, if I go out on stage with some groups, the music is changing so bad, I wouldn't even know why, how, what the song sounded like. Really? Be- because I knew, I knew all the old stuff. You yeah. Know? Uh, you said you think the music is changing. Do you think it's changing for the good or for the bad? Oh, I won't say. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. How, how do you see it changing? I, I, uh, it's more chords in it. it more, it's more chord changes. And... Uh, and I talk about that sometime, and people say, good Lord, mercy, look at Lewis family songs. And, but I don't see where ours is like that, because ours, like it's running in slow motion to change. Nowadays, these pickers on the stage, they're so sharp, they can go, zip, 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 and, you know, I can't do that. I have to think about it a while before I do it. <laughs> I guess it's changing to the good, but really, I, I like, I guess we call that real true traditional and i like that and i like the other two but it ain't it ain't me like i would do it you know yeah i've noticed that you uh you really like cars i've you've mentioned specifically a whole bunch of different cars just so far why are you so fascinated with automobiles always when i was a little boy uh it was a lady up the road her name was viola downer and she'd come pick my aunt up uh in a model a ford and they would go 13 miles every Sunday. And when, when she would drive up, when she would drive up, I just couldn't believe how that thing sounded. And uh, then the other started, the cars got to come in the end, the 53 Fords and the 55 Ford and all that kind of stuff. But they weren't interesting to me because I love that Model A. And I've had a Model A since 1960. And uh, I've had Model A's. I got three now. And um, and I got fifty six Chevrolet. I'm not going. I got a lot of old cars. <laughs> what was your family's first car? Do you remember that? Yeah, the first when we first started singing, uh, my brother and Wallace and Miggy uh, bought a Buick, and it was just a regular car. And uh, we would go. They would go singing in it, but we would have to follow uh, behind in another car. And it was usually a Ford. That meant two cars everywhere we went. And so uh, in 1954, we bought a 51 limousine Cadillac, and that would haul eight people. That's pretty good, yeah. (laughs) It it was three, three, six, and it would haul nine people if you sit close. And uh, we would tie the bass fiddle on top and put a banjo and a guitar and two guitars and a and a banjo and a madeline and a fiddle in. And our PA system was in a, a box, you know, not too big a box. And, and we'd roll that speakers out and, and sing. And that's the way we went. We'd, sometimes when it was raining, we'd have to put extra canvas on the, on the bass fiddle to keep it uh, from getting wet. And then we wore that car out. And then about 1958... Uh, we bought a 54 limousine Cadillac, and we got it from a funeral home. And we'd done the same thing. We rode in it until 1959, and then we decided we're going to get us a bus. So we got our first bus at the end of 59, and uh, we called it customized. We just put bunks in it and stuff. And uh, in 1962, we bettered ourselves because we were making money. And got another one. In 1966, we bought a brand spanking new one. And we've had new ones ever since. All but 
1992, when um, Conway Twitty died, when Conway Twitty died, um, when Conway Twitty died, uh, we bought his bus, and uh, we put a million and uh, eighty-seven thousand on it, and so, and then we got another bus, and after Conway Twitty, it was one more bus, and then the Lewis family retired. So after the uh, the television show really took off, and people all around the country started knowing who the Lewis family was. Uh, y'all got the opportunity to work on some big package shows, not just with bluegrass, but with country as well. I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis shows, uh, Loretta and Conway, and uh, Doodly Doo Doo Doo. What was his name? Uh, Del Reeves. Del Reeves, and I. We just worked with everybody, and uh, and we were so different than everybody else. Uh, you would be thinking. Boy, are they going to like us. But, you know, back in them days, people accepted us just as much as they did anybody else. And uh, one, of the, one of the times that I didn't think they were going to like us was uh, we went to, um, we went to Rio, Dos, Rio Doso, New Mexico, and it was called the, it was called the, uh, nothing, it was nothing but Western Swing, Western Swing Music. And they booked us out there. Like a big, like, Texas dance hall type deal? Mm-hmm. Big thing. And uh, we were booked out there. And here we are. We're talking about on the stage. Four bass fiddles, 18 fiddles. Lizzie was one of them. 18 fiddles, horns. You couldn't even hear your ears. And then the first time we went out there, here we are, me and Lizzie and three more people. And we walked out on that stage, and people started getting up. They started getting up, you know, like we threw with this. And all at once, it was like a magnet pulling the people back. <laughs> and we were top-notch out there, and still good could be, but the main man retired. No, he died. His name was Larry Scott. Larry Scott was a disc jockey. Uh, he, uh, if you listen to Shreveport back in the old days, he was the voice of that part of the country. I mean, it went, it more went west in Texas than it did our way. But he was, he was a great friend of ours, and he loved the Lewis family. And one day he told me, he, st- he told me, he said, uh, one day uh, he was with Hoss Cartwright and all of them, and uh, they were talking about bluegrass music. And Hoss Cartwright told him, if what his name was, I forget. But anyhow, he told him, he said, I don't know what you think about it. Mac Wiseman's my favorite singer. And I said, <laughs> you got to be kidding. He said he loved Mac <laughs> And right now, I want to say, a lot of people that has become stars that was just little in Bluegrass, take Marty Stewart. He's the same Marty. The eight-year-old boy that used to take my banjo and guitar in for me in Philadelphia, Mississippi, he's the same person. And the Oak Ridge boys, they are still Bill Golden and Dwayne Allen and the rest of them, too. That's the best friends I got. I don't care where I go or what time it is. I can pick up, pick up my, flip, my flip-top phone, and I can talk to Marty, and I can talk to them. And I can talk to Mac Wiseman, and I can talk to anybody I want to in bluegrass music, and they're still my friends. Why do you think it's important for uh, folks, no matter what genre of music, to uh, still remain the same person after they become successful? You know, I don't understand why nobody would change. It makes no sense to me. Because we've all seen it, yeah. The way I look at it, times has changed. And the older ones that were so great, they had to work so hard to do it. Now it's more like if you think you can sing and you are nice looking, they can put you in tune. And they can get you the right songwriters to make a hit. And I, that's what I think it is. Uh, did I answer that? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to not take yourself too seriously? Because while you take your music seriously, I mean, I, you wear bullwinkle hats and put suspenders on your head. So you can't take yourself too seriously. 
Can you? No. I just like fooling. I, I just tell you what. If you watch me, if you watch me, you're going to see me everywhere looking at everybody and doing things. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you are. I don't care if you're high class, if you're low class. I don't care if you chew tobacco. I don't care what you do. Yeah, if you drink beer, it don't bother me. Nothing bothers me because I'm going to be your friend any way you look at it. And uh, that's why, if you notice me on this thing, I, I go around and play with the people that nobody else sometimes will ever play with because I, I want to show them that I come up like that too. And it means a lot to me to show them what I know so this thing will just keep lasting. I saw you in a jam session last night, and you said you'd been in there for three, three and a half hours picking with everybody. Man, it ain't nothing no better than that, you know, uh, to watch, see what the people can do, you know. And, uh, and, 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 and a lot of times, a lot of times, a lot of people is looked over. Yeah. That's great. And uh, i tell you one for sure. You know the Mayo Pass Brothers? Yeah. Okay. Chris. Nobody else would put him on stage, but the Lewis family and me put him on stage when he was 11. Oh, really? His brother was still in diapers. Wow. And then we started working up there where they're from, and the other they were in school. Um, the other one was in high school, and then we liked them because they sung Leuven Brothers. Oh, yeah. Because we see the Lewis family used to sing with the Leuven Brothers and Martha Carson and and. Bill Monroe, everybody. We sung with everybody. And uh, guess who you to edit our television program? You'll never believe this. Jim Neighbors. Oh, really? He edited the Lewis Family TV shows for $5 a piece. <laughs> and in 1962, we missed him. And we missed him. We didn't know where he went. And the first thing we know, we cut the television on, and he's going to pile. <laughs> Brenda Lee was there with us. And a lot of Buck Trent was there with us. Bobby Thompson that done the banjo picking on Hee Haw. Bobby Thompson was with us. And uh, it's a lot of good music come from around, um, uh, right up above us. You take the, the people right up above us, like in Spartanburg, South Carolina. That's where the good banjo pickers, you go in North Carolina, it's part of South Carolina. That's where all the banjo picker was. I was way down in Georgia. I was the only one down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don Reno was a fine friend. 1964, I went over there to Union, South Carolina. Ronnie was going to school, and I bought a banjo from Don Reno. And I thought, wow, I'm going to sound like Don. It never did work like that, folks. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. How did you learn to play the auto harp? Uh, Janice, we played Timbo, Arkansas one time. Timbo, Arkansas, we were invited to uh, the man that wrote his name was, uh, let's see, in 1814. Oh, Johnny Horton. No, he recorded it. Uh, the man that wrote the song. Oh, Jimmy Driftwood. Jimmy Driftwood. We were invited uh, to Jimmy Driftwood home, and uh, we went out there one day and sang some songs with him. Then we went to the schoolhouse, and when we got to the school, we went in the room to tune up, and there was a room full of auto harps. They, they taught it in school. So my sister Janice said, told the principal, said, can I buy one? So Janice bought the auto harp in 1961. I tuned it, but didn't know how to play it. 
we had this afternoon program in Augusta, and we was taping it. And a captain in the army was from the state of Wa- uh, state of Washington. He come to watch me play and learn how to play. And we invited him up to our house that night. And he walked in and he said, "Who plays auto harp?" We said, "Nobody." And he took and he took about ten minutes to show me a few things. And then me being a banjo picker. My picks is already there. So that, that part kind of came natural, that, the, the, the pick yeah, part. So the you were ahead of the game going in. I, yeah. yeah, because the right hand was already there. Yeah. It's just a different way to do it. And so he had to show me how you do the other part to get the notes. And uh, folks, if you want to learn how to play a harp, ain't nothing to it. Just get one and try it. If you're having a problem, come see me and I'll show you. <laughs> so, um... You like to have fun. You don't take yourself too seriously. You like to work hard. These values, did you learn these from your mom and dad or from going to church or, or what? Learned the value from my mom and daddy. Never smoked a cigarette and never drank anything at all until right lately. Sometime I can't sleep. And they, they told me to take just a little bit of wine. So sometimes I drank a little bit. Boy, that's some terrible stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do that. But I now I don't sound nobody drinks it. But I'll do that to go to sleep sometime. But uh, we were we were born and raised up to do right and to treat people right. And uh, and you knew what you could do. I don't care if I was 18 years old. If I'd have done something, mom and daddy told me, pop would have whooped my you know what. I mean, 18 years old. That's what's wrong sometimes with children today. They don't know because nobody didn't stop them from what they need to do. Yeah. What, they, what they do do, you know. Yeah. I think you're right on that. Mm-hmm. Where do you get all of your props that you take on stage? Because you walk out. You, you mentioned watching a bunch of them old comedians. You, it seems like you just have a never-ending supply of hats and costumes that you whip out when you're on stage. If you want to go to... Uh, out there, I can't even tell you where they all are, but I'll be rambling in the old buildings out there, and I'll find something that I made use 20 years ago, and I stuff it in my bag. And uh, in the other buses, uh, we had more room, and I take a whole whole pile of them. But now I take one bag and stuff some in the corner. I don't never what I, know what I want to be. <laughs> and I have to sometimes think about it, and uh, like at the festival. Like at the festival in Lincolnton, uh, I got a girl that home uh, that makes uh, stuff for me, and she's been making it uh, for me since she was a teenager. I just give her an idea of what I want to be, and she'll put it together. And she'll tell me, do you think it all look like this? And when it comes out, it's going to look better than what I told <laughs> What are some of your favorite costumes or props that you've used on stage? I, I, I wore a tutu one time. <laughs> she made that for me. And then I've been um, I've been a, a little bitty man with a long coat that had uh, that had like you wear with a with a suit, uh, you know, formal suit. Yeah. And then I could pull the string, and I could let the tail up in the air. <laughs> I, it could be a short coat. It could be a long coat. Uh, and the the britches, I find two pair of funny-looking shorts, and then I give them to her, and I tell them sew them together. And that way, when I put them on, I can just slip them over everything I got, and all at once, I I can come up, become another person. <laughs> and uh, a dentist, a dentist out in uh, uh, Bowser City, Louisiana, he's the first one that made my ugly teeth. Yeah, and uh. We went, I was in Texas. He bought all his equipment, and just like I was going through Fort Steve. Now, it's in, in Augusta, it's a lady that makes them for me, and now I can, I can look in the way I want to look. Yeah, yeah. I can be toothless. I can be anything I want to be. And all you need to do is do that and, and think about something I saw in the cartoons or think about something you saw um, – Bud and Lou Costello do. 
things you saw, the Three Stooges, Tom and Jerry. Uh, that's where it all comes from. <laughs> it, I, my mind is going round and round circles. And, and uh, when I see things, that's what I, I focus on what I saw when I was a little boy. And it could be up to now, you know. I heard one pretty great story about where you had a New Year's gig and you came out dressed as the baby New Year. Is that true? Yeah, I had I had the diapone, and that I believe that was with Raymond Fairchild, and uh, that was in um, Jekyll Island. I don't know if that was probably good gracious. That's probably in the nineties, and um, we've done the song Twenty uh, Twenty Vision and Walking Around Blind. Well, I do that with Raymond, and I have the eyeballs that pop out. Oh. <laughs> I think about songs like that. I try to put, I try to put things together with a song. Uh, if you're thinking of, of doing something with somebody, like I was Cotton Eye Joe yeah. with the Jim and Jesse. And Cotton Eye Joe, what Cotton Eye Joe looked like, Cotton Eye Joe comes out of the bathroom with his long handles on and his flap left down in the back. And I'd have the girl to make me a fake-looking uh, but. <laughs> and then I was Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> like on the stage of last year, Ron Thompson was out there. Ron Thompson was out there with us, you know, the uh, Vibe Fly Dry Branch fly, Fire Squad. Fire squad. <laughs> and he's a real dear friend of ours. What he called Lizzie, this is how it comes by. He called Lizzie a week before time, said a horse had throwed him. And he's having to have in terrible pain. But he's going to be there, but could we have him a stool? So Lizzie told me, said, we got to take him a stool. So we took him a stool. I went to the hardware store and I got a commode. And they fixed it on a flat for me. And then I set it out on the stage. I was going to make him sit on the toilet, but he was so bad shape he couldn't. So every time I'd take a break, I'd go sit on the toilet, and the sound man made a flush for me. <laughs> so, see, that's how it comes. Yeah. You mentioned something to me, and then I get to work on what can make that funny. Yeah. Well, I've seen it before where um, I think uh, Rhonda Vincent had her mama come out and sing the, the pig song that she always does. So you yeah. came out as a pig. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes it works, and sometimes it don't. What, what's one where, where you thought something was going to be just side-splittingly hilarious and people just didn't get it? It just went over their head or it didn't work? or I'm sure there's got to be some where... Yeah, I'm going to tell you what it was. I was in... Um, but I won in the long run. <laughs> Milan, Michigan. Milan, Michigan. I had a costume. And I was going to come out on the Osborne Brothers show. And... Uh, Sonny told the rest of the group, it don't make no difference what Little Roy does, we don't laugh. <laughs> so I come out on the stage with my costume. What it, was the costume? It, I don't even remember. I come on stage with my costume. And the folks were laughing, but they wasn't. And they, I felt so bad when I went behind the stage. The people got it, but they, but they done that to get me, you know. And I mean, I guess called having fun. And I went behind the stage, and a man, he was um, right at seven foot tall. Wow. And he looked down at me, and he said, Little Roy, he said, will you sign my picture? And I told him, I said, will you come out on the stage with me? He said, yeah. So I went out and saw his face, and I said, don't you ever do that to me no more. I'll sick my little brother on you. <laughs> I sang another song. I go out there, don't you do that most. I say, I'm, I'm. You're building it up. Building yeah. up. I've done that three times, and then I bought that man on the stage, and he was about seven. He was an inch from being seven foot tall. And Sonny looked up at him, and Sonny just busted out laughing. <laughs> so I wanted after all. Milan, Michigan, I never forget. But I thought I was a dead duck. 
I thought I was a dead duck. <laughs> when did you first meet Lizzie? See, I used to play music with our granddaddy with the Lewis brothers. It was the Lewis brothers after them. It was just people to get together. So all the generation went by, and one day I was on a lawnmower, and her dad had stopped and said, uh, those girls, they think the world of you, talking about Lizzie and Rebecca. And I said, uh, we're going to have Thanksgiving uh, picking tonight when you come. I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't, I hadn't even even seen them girls. And I went down there, and there's Lizzie sitting up on the piano with a fiddle with tape up and neck. You know how they learn how to play. Yeah. And, the, and Rebecca with a guitar, 11 years old. And um, they, Lizzie sat there, and she watched everything. Rebecca would jump up and run away for 35, 40 minutes, come back, get up there. Lizzie stood there. She stayed there the whole while we played. Rebecca would go. Lizzie would stay. That night after we got through, Lizzie told me, she said, uh, could you show me how to play the banjo? I said, yeah. So they had an old banjo up in the attic, in their attic. And they went and got it, and I showed them that. And I said, this is it. The next morning, she called me, and she said, I can do it. And I said, I'll bring you some picks. So I go back up there, and she puts the picks on, and she plays the banjo. And then I started going over there, and they would bring her by school from school, and I sat there and teach her a little bit, teach her a little bit along. And so I finally told her, I said, I just can't do this all the time because Lewis family goes so much. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you something. So I ordered, me and Murphy Henry is best of friends from since she was a little girl. And ain't nobody thinks more about Earl Scruggs than me and her. So I ordered Lizzie a beginner's banjo from Murphy Henry. And I told her, I said, don't call me till you learn it. Six songs on there, I think. Show you how to do everything. She called me and she had it. And then I started, after she got that, then I could take time with her because it would take about a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. And that's how she learned how to play that. Now, she's a piano player, too. I bet, I bet really? You know that. She can play anything. Oh, I can, I can tell that she's just got yeah. a gift. Basically, she can, play, she can play anything she wants to. Yeah. From accordion to anything. It's amazing to me. When did you two start performing together? Started taking her with the Lewis family for two songs. And I started taking her on the shows with the Lewis family. And I bring her out for two songs. And uh, sometimes when she get a bigger hand than some of the rest of us, some of them didn't like that. <laughs> but I couldn't help that. And um, finally, you know, she went off to college and uh, went to West Virginia. We, we played Summersville, West Virginia, and they gave her a presidential scholarship. It didn't cost her to go to college. Wow. That Glenville, West Virginia. And when she got through there, she moved to Nashville where well, we built a house up there for her. We still have it. And um, it's five minutes from the Grand Ole Opry. And so she was around Buddy Spiker, Mac Wiseman, and the fellow that produces our records. His name is Wayne Horn, which is a genius. And they the ones that really polish her. Really? On the singing. Yeah. I polished her on the instruments. Buddy Spiker, now I can't play a fiddle, but I know I know how to play one, but I can't play it. Buddy Spiker, if you're listening to her, you'll hear a lot of Buddy Spiker in her. Because Buddy took the time to show her. It's got to be rewarding um, to, see, to see someone that was, you know, a younger person that really soaked up everything that you did and, and your musical talent, everything that you and your family had accomplished. Now, to be able to, to perform with her, how exciting is that for you? Still exactly. We get in a dog fight sometimes <laughs> because um, she learned from me to be, uh, um, she learned from me that when you hit that stage, that's the most important thing of the day. 
the way you address yourself when you walk out on that stage, it ain't the second song that does it. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. The second song ain't going to do it. The first song is going to do it. Yeah. And you're going to know them people are going to like you if you do the first song right. And uh, I've told her that in time and time again. It's the way, it's the way you present yourself. In other words, you're sure of yourself yeah. when you walk out on the on stage. What, what are some other tips um, for showmanship that you that you've given Lizzie or, or that you uh, would give any any young picker? The timing, the timing. Uh, <clears throat> it's the right time, the right look. Uh, that's why. That's what I try to teach her. You know, I'll say something. She'll look at me, and I'll give her that, you know, the eyes. And, you know, you can look at each other. A lot of times, a stare for two minutes is a life, is the funniest life of all. You know, like she said something that I make like I don't like, you know, and the crowd get, really gets it. Well, that's that's same thing as a joke. Yeah. <laughs> that's same thing as a joke. What are some things in uh, the Little Roy and Lizzie show that are different than uh, what you used to do with the Lewis family? I'm not doing anything any different. Okay. Only thing, I know I got a good fiddle player, and I, I know I got support from her, from anything. Look here. When we practice, she can play the best rhythm for me on the guitar. On the stage, she monkeys around because she got another, we got another guitar pick yeah. on that. <laughs> But she can flat do it if she. I mean, she can. She can pick the cane lightning style like I can too. She does all that. How much longer do you, would you like to do this? Long as I live. Long as you live. I mean, long as I, long as my health is good. Yeah. And uh, my dad will live to be ninety eight. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that um, I'll be around a long time. I certainly hope so because. Um, so you might have another 20 years left of this. I might. <laughs> Daddy, you know, yeah. he, 95, he was plowing a tractor. Yeah. And he was like me. If you never did know my daddy, uh, he he was like me. First one off the bus to talk to people. Yeah. And he knew, he knew that I could take care. He didn't have to worry like me about nothing like that. Yeah. Only thing he had to, he taught us to start with, his worry was over. We just bring him on stage. He could do his thing. Yeah, he he knew that uh, that it was all in good hands with yeah. y'all. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean to you when uh, when people come up and appreciate what you do? Oh man, I tell you what, the biggest thrill of my life still is somebody want to autograph a picture. I don't care what it is or what they want me to do. I don't care if this they want me to do a funny one or a sad one or anything you want. That's the biggest thrill. And I, that's what I don't get about some of these new stars. People want to see, what if Hank Williams hadn't autographed? What if, um, what if all, all Bill Monroe and all hadn't autographed uh, Grandpa Jones? I mean, this fellow that sings like Hank Williams that's on, uh, on uh, the boat with us sometimes, you know, uh, he's got something he carries around with him. A lady, because he sings like Hank, it's an old broke 78 the center, and Hank Williams signed it. Wow. Marty Stewart sent me Hank Williams' uh, pocket knife and a songbook that was in the Cadillac the day Hank died that, that Hank was going to sell. Marty sent me one. And stuff like that. If that stuff, went, and if, if, you, if you don't take time, if you don't take time with your fans, if I don't take time, with I don't even want to be here. Yeah. This is what it's all about. It ain't all about that beach laying out there, laying out there on that beach. No, it's in this, it's, uh, this, people might not understand what we're doing. We're on a boat right now. Yeah. <laughs> but we're on a boat down here somewhere. Uh, where are we, Bahamas somewhere? Uh, between Bahamas and Florida now. But anyhow, um, I, I, like yesterday, a day before yesterday, you ain't going to catch me out on the beach because I, I got better things to do. I can hear a banjo picking. I can hear, I just like music. Yeah. What does this, this music mean to you? My life wouldn't be complete without what I do in good music. I can, uh, like last night, uh, we were playing Sweet Half Mine, Don't You Hear You Calling. For me, able to pe- for me able to be able to pick that break, 
like I think Earl would have done it. That's the biggest thrill. And to hear that good fiddle player playing that break exactly like the fiddle player on Bill Monroe Records, to me, that's all. You don't need nothing else. Or either doo-doo-doo-doo, Lester Flat. You don't beat that. <laughs> Carter Stanley. Oh, man. Jimmy Martin. We can just name him Charlie Moore. Charlie Monroe. Charlie Monroe was a good friend of mine. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you what. I learned from the best. Most of them are gone now. But I got it all in my mind, and I want to share it with the whole world that it all started in North Carolina when Lester Flatner or Scruggs went with Bill Monroe. How grateful are you that uh, you've been able to make a living making music and making people laugh and entertaining people rather than working in the fields? I'm going to do this anyhow. If, if I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, it ain't the money thing. It's, uh, it's what I get out of it. I mean, money's fine, but you know what? We had a lot of thin days. We had, But anyhow, I'm satisfied with my life and the way I live. Bluegrass Hall of Famer Little Roy Lewis is our guest on the Walls of Time podcast today. We recorded this episode on the deck of a cruise ship. There's cruising, and then there's cruising with Little Roy Lewis. They just about left him at one of them islands out there, but we won't get into that. Uh, Little Roy is such a beloved personality in the world of bluegrass music. Grew up with uh, the first family of bluegrass gospel, the Lewis family. He dives into some Lewis family history and more on this episode of the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. All right, Ty, let's just get it out there. Little Roy may be one of the most entertaining individuals and uh, unique characters that bluegrass music has ever seen. Yeah, he's great. You know, as another guy, I love listening to him talk, <laughs> listening to his <laughs> stories. Uh, a practical joker, of course, uh, a fun man. A guy just full of life, full of love for bluegrass music. And, you know, if you meet him, I've met him a couple times, you know, just backstage at, I think we were playing up in Virginia one time and uh, the Lewis family. Actually, I think he was there with um, his little Roy and Lizzie show at the time. And, uh, you know, he's just as nice and encouraging and uh, fun loving of a guy, you know, not in front of the crowd as he is uh, just back talking one on one to you. It's almost like he's always in entertainment mode, but. Just a sweet man and uh, a, a very brave man. I got to say, a very brave man, considering some of the things he's done and some of the things he talks about in this, and some of the stories about his antics that you hear in the podcast. He's someone that truly embraces the entertainment aspect in uh, in putting on a show for a crowd. I loved learning about where some of the ideas for these antics came from, watching cartoons as a kid and watching folks like Abbott and Costello and the Three Stooges. I might may, maybe the only bluegrasser I know of that has his own seamstress that helps make some of these crazy costumes on stage where he'll see them in a Rocky and Bullwinkle skit or on the Three Stooges and go to her and say, I want a sport coat that does XYZ or I want a hat that can do XYZ. Uh, that that blew my mind. He's got to be the only one of those in bluegrass, that's for sure. Dropping down from the rafters onto Sonny Osborne. Who does that? That's 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 part of the bravery. There, there's one man. That's Little Roy Lewis. That's, that's also the only man in bluegrass I know that plays that could play banjo with a bullwinkle hat on. So, uh, it was great hearing from Little Roy Lewis and learning more about what great stars the Lewis family were in their time and uh, their forays into television and how they may have had one of the earliest syndicated bluegrass television shows. Yeah, I think. We forget how big uh, the Lewis family um, has been historically. In a lot of ways, as far as bluegrass and bluegrass gospel, they very much were household names for a lot of the country. And working with artists like Johnny Cash and, as I mentioned, being seen all across uh, the area on television, Lewis family, uh, top notch. The reason they're called the first family of bluegrass gospel and members of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. Little Roy, of course, still performs today, and he, he's got as much energy that puts uh, folks like me and you to shame, Ty, on that cruise 
you'd think it'd be some of the young cats that would be some of the last to leave the jam session. I'd see little Roy sit there and play the banjo and jam way up into the wee hours of the morning. He still has as much energy now, if not more, than he did when he was in his 20s and 30s. Yeah, I think that's really great, you know, and from a guy who grew up working on the farm, you know, he talks about going from picking cotton to picking the banjo. I think for me, the takeaway uh, from listening to this again, this conversation with Little Roy and just remembering the uh, couple times I've met him is, you know, it's a great way to, to be in life. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't be too judgmental with folks. You know, get up there and jam. You know, the, the saying goes, don't get above your raisin. Well, I think that's one thing he's done. He's always been a people person. He's always gotten there and played. And, you know, as big as the Lewis family has been over the years, he's still just a down-to-earth guy that'll pat you on the back and pick with you. And we could all learn to be a lot more like little Roy, I think. And so I'm so glad you could have him for this interview and this episode of the Walls of Time podcast. Be sure to check out the Little Roy and Lizzie show if they're playing at a bluegrass festival near you. They know how to entertain, and it's a great to still see a legend like Little Roy performing at stages across the country. Where can folks go to learn more about the podcast, Ty? You can learn more about the podcast on all our social media pages. We're on Instagram at Walls of Time Podcast. We're the same on Facebook. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're going to put Little Roy Lewis playlists on our Spotify Walls of Time page. You can follow us there and check out the playlist for the episode. We're also on Twitter at Walls of Time Pod. Listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Next time on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, part one of another two-part episode, sat down with Carl Jackson. You talk about a guy that's been a jack-of-all-trades in Nashville for decades Great diving into Carl's journey in Roots music. Played the banjo with Jim and Jesse. Worked with Glenn Campbell. Been one of the top record producers in Nashville. We cover it all. Uh, Part one of a two-part conversation with Carl Jackson next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next time. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.